Welcome to the All In Your Head podcast, where we get all in your head. We are a mental health podcast focused on anything and everything mental health. We will have special guests ranging from mental health experts, mental health advocates, and just everyday people with real struggles. We will share laughs, we will share cries, but most importantly, we will have real conversations about mental health. So with that being said, let's get all in your head. Woohoo! Yeah, let me just start by talking about this performance series that we have. And yeah. my goal is to have guests and discussions at every phase of this model that I created, the Spire of Performance. Uh, you can find this model on inspirehealthandperformance.com. But the foundation of this Spire is physical health. So we've had really great guests, informative guests that have been able to discuss exercise as it relates to mental health diet, nutrition as it relates to mental health, and also sleep. And actually sleep is so important that we had two guests because I don't think we talk about sleep enough. And so the last phase of mental health that I like to talk to people about is their relationship with substances. And all those other things can be in order. And then you have issues with substances and it just throws everything off, right? Mm -hmm. And I certainly have seen an issue uh, as relates to substance in my work. And I thought it'd be important to discuss. So we have Steve Carlton here today, who is an expert in the area of addiction. So Steve, why don't you just introduce yourself to the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much for having me, Jamie. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm Steve Carlton. I'm an LCSW and a certified addiction specialist. I've been treating addictions and substance use for about 17 years. I started out with the University of Colorado in the Addiction Research and Treatment Services uh, Programming. Then I was at the Department of Veterans Affairs for a decade and now I medical officer of a medical drug and alcohol detox facility called Gallus Medical Detox. And we have five centers um, in Texas, Colorado, Arizona, and Nevada. And what we primarily specialize in is the treatment of opioids. Uh, about 60% of our population still is alcohol withdrawals because those are the most dangerous. But we specialize also in severe opioid use disorder and severe sedative use disorder. So benzodiazepines, which can be really tricky for people as well. And mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then I'm also a professor at the University of Denver where, where you teach as well. 17 years. That's awesome. That means you have some longevity. That means we're probably about the same age as well, because I've done this about the same amount of time. You don't have to tell me your age, but <laughs> we're probably about the same age. And We'll leave it to mystery, Jim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks for, for being with us. And there's a couple of goals that I have in our time together. I hope that we can just give a message to just the person out there who's just living life and, but also using substances at different levels. And maybe it's affected them, maybe it hasn't, but they're really curious if they have a substance use issue. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about and give messaging to people who maybe know they have an addiction and they're afraid to get help or they don't know how, know how to get help. And then I would like to also give messaging to folks who are just in their addiction. It's pretty serious. So they have family members that they know who are truly in their addiction and they just don't know what to do. And then we're going to spend a little time just talking about fentanyl and opioid use because that's an expertise that you have. And we certainly want to tap into that while we have you. So uh, that's our goal for today. So let's first talk about this everyday person. They're living life. Maybe they're successful at work. Yeah. Um, they're successful in their relationship. 
I think a lot about the people who I work with. These are often salespeople or CEOs that I work with, who it's a part of their lifestyle and part of their work culture to go out, entertain customers, drink, have a good time, but it's starting to catch up with them potentially, or they're at least getting messaging from other people. Maybe it's their spouse or people that they know, like, hey, you seem to be doing this quite a bit. So I guess my first question is for those folks, how do you truly assess or know that you might have an issue in this area? Absolutely. It's a it's a great question. It is a common one that comes up, you know, because substance use it, it, it's on a spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not always cut and dry. And I think in the span of a person's lifetime, they can they can go from sort of not having any problem to to a moderate or, or even a severe problem and back and back down again. It doesn't always follow this really clear, concise trajectory. And so I think that's hard. It's not mm-hmm. static in people's lives. I think when if we just talk about people with severe substance use disorder, right? People where it's addiction and that, and that addiction is pervasive and really causing significant problems in their life. I think that the four most common sort of things to look out for is a loss of control. Like you, you go from sort of, I, I'm going to go out and have a couple beers to, and, and that's my intention to now going out and having a couple beers turns into 10, 12, 15 drinks and, and missing work the next day. So this loss of control, like drinking more than you intend to over a long period of time, not being able to moderate, right? Mm-hmm. Social and occupational consequences, like people mm-hmm. basically start having problems in their personal life and they're, and they're not performing in, at work either. Um, the third one being risky use, right? Mm-hmm. Taking more risk, drinking and driving being the most classic example mm-hmm. Um, spending more money than you have when you're intoxicated, right? Um, doing goofy things when you're intoxicated, right? You know, <laughs> goofy like, and risky, right? Like go- go- risky. goofy is one thing, right? But when that goofy gets you handcuffs, it's, it's a whole other <laughs> level, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, when it lands at handcuffs or bodily injury, right? Like <laughs> high risky use, like that's that's a that's a sign, like hey, I'm yeah. I'm headed towards trouble. And then the last one, the one that I'm intimately deal with at Gallus Medical Detoxes, withdrawals mm-hmm. and and tolerance, right? Withdrawals meaning when you stop taking substances, you get physically ill, right? Um, And people talk about hangovers all the time. And this can be normalized and even joked about and talked about a lot. But, you know, if you're waking up in the middle of the night in cold sweats from drinking and waking up shaky and ill, like that's a sign that like this is a bigger problem and just needing more of it to get the same effect, that tolerance thing. I mean, that that's really what people should look out for. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny. Well, not funny, but it's it can it can sneak up on people, you know, and yeah. Yeah, that's the interesting part. You talked about that spectrum, too. And I know that we went through a period of COVID where I know I saw a significant increase in use because people are sitting at home, easy to pop open that bottle of wine, even easy to work while you're drinking, right? Because you're just on Zoom and nobody really knows. And so I think we're also experiencing a post-COVID hangover. And now there's anxiety related to going back into the office. And now I'm stressed out because I have to be around people again. So I need to take the edge off of that. And yeah. and so I, I have seen certainly an increase in both substance use, and we're not going to talk about it today, but also gambling addiction too. I've seen an increase in gambling addiction as well. Just to uh, rehash and just to make sure we're real clear on that, because you mentioned four important points. Yeah. Uh, number one, a loss of control. Mm-hmm. Two, social and work consequences. Mm-hmm. Three, just riskier use. And then four, 
withdrawal intolerance. And so I make sure, did I get those? I want to make sure I got that's those. That's it. You got yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, those are the things, those are the questions that people should ask about themselves. There's so much stigma around substance use, right? Mm-hmm. And most people aren't honest with their doctors and their therapist about their substance yeah. use because they don't want to hear, they don't want to hear the answer that maybe, maybe that's too much, right? Or there's embarrassment or shame around how much they're, they're using. And so there's, there's just this pull of, or what does that mean if I have a substance use problem? Well, what it means is you're one in 10 people in the U.S. struggle with this. This is not an uncommon problem, you know? Yeah, and I found that people, they don't want to use the word addiction either. They're afraid of that word addiction, yeah. right? They, they will use every other word, but they struggle with that with that addiction word. But if you if you're using, if you're doing something or using something and you ha- you can't stop, I think addiction is the right word. And I think sometimes we need to 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 call it what it is. And yeah. so if you're, you know, if you're one of these people or if you're working with one of these people, first of all, I will say that sometimes sometimes the work is just helping to see helping someone to see that they have an issue right like i mm-hmm. people don't want to admit it and so yeah. sometimes that's that's the challenge but if you're 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 working with someone or you might be one of those people and you're starting to realize that maybe i should get some help how would you advise people to take those next steps yeah, it's interesting. So it's a it's a really important question. It's one that can lead people to feel pretty lost, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I get I get calls from you know obviously professionally, but also personally. Like people in my life sort of know that I do this for a living, mm-hmm. and so I've had lots of those conversations just to, with people about like how much is too much, Steve? Like what what do I need to know? And mm-hmm. you know, I think a general rule of thumb to add on to the previous conversation is anything with alcohol specifically, anything more than 15 drinks in a week for a, for a man and any, anything more than nine for a woman is, is what CDC and research shows is, is too much. If people want those sort of like very specific. Uh, Some people need, some people need that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And it's good to have guardrails and boundaries. and, And I think you should take that into consideration and, and and moderating use and trying to back off of use is really important too because mm-hmm. ambivalence is so normal people yeah. typically talk about quitting for long before they actually make those decisions and get some traction with it mm-hmm. but for people seeking help it's tough access to care is really difficult i, I think um and sort of depending on sort of what insurance policy you sort of, sort of get you get sort of pushed in different directions at Gallus, where I work, is family members initiating those calls mm-hmm. and saying, like, I'm worried about my son, I'm worried about my wife, I'm worried about my husband, right? My grandson, whatever it is, my friend. And I'm gathering some resources. I'm trying to figure out sort of what services are available. If somebody is in the throes of a severe addiction, like chances are they're not able to do that research for yeah. themselves. Like they have to rely on social supports to help them navigate those systems and figure out what services are available to me and sort of what's accessible with my insurance or whatever funds I have. And so I think that that's a really important message just to family and people struggling. If you're the one struggling, like who can you tap to help you with it? Yeah. Right. And if you're that loved one, like that, that can be an important role for you is to help them find services. The other thing I'll note is if you're worried about a loved one, you you got to get yourself and 
all the stakeholders in that person's lives organized, right? If if people just start to nag and in highly tense situations say, you know, I think you have a real severe problem, Jamie, and you need to get help immediately, that doesn't go very well. But mm-hmm. if you get organized and you use an opportunity well to say, hey, I'm getting together with your wife and your brother and, and me, and we're all coming to you at the same time and saying, like, we're worried about you. Mm-hmm. You don't seem yourself. Can we help you? That's a better way to approach people out of love, concern, compassion. And I think that's that's really important with a problem that's so stigmatized. Yeah, and I think it's important for people to understand that there's different levels of care too. So just because you need treatment doesn't mean, I think people, when they think of substance use treatment, they think this hospital type setting, everything stripped from them. That's not the only level of care. So you, can you talk briefly just about yeah. the different levels of care that people can experience? There's a whole spectrum of level of care. Before we get into that, I want people yeah. to understand the biggest predictor of success with a substance use disorder or recovering from an addiction is is just connection, mm. right? Is yeah. days and some type of recovery environment, right? And your yeah. and your whole platform, Jamie, like diet, exercise, yeah. like yeah. if you if you like, there's sober gyms, but there's also just normal gyms. If people right. get into like connected communities, that is ultimately the the goal and long term what's going to make people successful. But if you start out if people are physiologically dependent, right? If when you stop using, you get physically ill, mm-hmm. like then you need detox. Mm-hmm. And that's the highest level of care. Mm-hmm. That's done in sort of a hospital setting or in in a facility like Gallus, where you come in, we use IV medical treatment. So we're, we're pumping fluids and medications into people to, um, to detox them. And detox is just a, it's a fancy way of saying we are, tapering people off we are slowly mm-hmm. gradually tapering people off of that substance so in detox we're giving people the same substance or similar substances that help sort of manage that withdrawal effect so people aren't incredibly sick like you've seen mm-hmm. in like basketball diaries and traffic yeah below that is just residential treatment right mm-hmm. and that's a high level of care that's a disruption in people's lives like going and living somewhere for 30 45 90 up to a year in a in a treatment facility that's called, that's what we call residential or inpatient or what people commonly refer to as rehab yeah. right below that's like partial hospitalization it's like a day treatment program so that's like i can't remember you probably know Jamie is it 20 hours a week of care in that setting something something to that effect yeah, 2024 I don't, I don't do i don't do a lot of that level of care so i, I choose yeah. to i try to only know what i need to know <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a, it, you're going five days a week yeah. right into it, it's like school hours probably and you're gonna go and do groups and get treatment and yeah. and um and get better but uh, most of the time people live at home or they live in what's called sober living yeah. and sober living is another great option you're basically you're renting a room in a house with other people that have that mutual goal of being clean and sober and, mm-hmm. and not not using. And so yeah. there's mutual support and accountability that happens in those places. Below that, there's intensive outpatient, right? So that's nine hours a week, typically yeah. over yeah. three days. So you're, you can still work and sort of have your family life, but you're still getting nine hours a week or more of help yeah. and support from professionals. And then all the way down to outpatient therapy and AA and 
yeah. other kinds of mutual support. Here in Denver, we have these free communities, which is a newer, uh, more interesting concept. It's really cool, but it's all about community. It's all about connection. Yeah, yeah you know? I agree. I want to address the connection piece. And then I also am interested to hear from you as to how you assess, because essentially you get this list of different placements and then you have to choose one. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear from you also maybe some questions you can ask or how you can, how you can maybe differentiate one from the other. But as far as connections, there's this pretty popular show intervention. And part yeah. of the, the intervention in intervention is to, it seems like to remove connection and to basically threaten people with taking away your relationship. And so what are your, not necessarily what are your thoughts about that show, but what are your yeah. thoughts about, because I think people get lost sometimes and they grasp at straws and they, they may yeah. see a show and they're like, well, let's try this and see if it works. But how do you feel about using yeah. connection as a, almost like a punishment if people don't get help? It's interesting. I've done a lot of work with families over mm -hmm. the year and the 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 longer i've been in this field like sort of the more my messaging to families has evolved i used to talk about enabling and codependency mm -hmm. yeah. a lot and now what i recognize after having this in my own family and sort of seeing how it plays out and uh, lots of close friends sort of having this problem now what i know is unless you're in that person's shoes as a loved one of somebody struggling with addiction you really can't judge, right? Mm -hmm. And what I, the, the advice I give to families is only you know when it is time to set those boundaries, yeah. to set those limits, to say, I, I have to step back from you, yeah. right? There is a time and a place to do that. Yeah. But it, it should not be the first, it should not be the first instinct is to yeah. withdraw connection and love. Like that's, that's not, no, uh, hopefully nobody's advising that, but I think that, I think that is unfortunately sort of a common thing that happens. Yeah. And I like how you said that because you do know your family, you know, the individuals within your family too, and you know, what may work or may not work. And the goal is to get them treatment, right? And there's a lot of different avenues to, to get treatment and it's not just a one size fits all. And so there may be some opportunities or situations where you may do something that feels uncomfortable or a little outside the box with the goal of getting getting them treatment. And if it works, great. It does feel desperate, I think, sometimes when you're in those situations. I can't imagine what it would be like to see somebody that you love, somebody, whether it be a yeah. child or a partner, struggling with something that's essentially killing them, right? And you see it play out. They're not getting the message. They're not getting help. And they're just getting worse and worse. I cannot imagine what it'd be like to be in that situation. It's awful, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people, like that's important to understand. Like, so people want to simplify things, and we yeah. like as humans, we just want things simple, right? right? And give us the give us the recipe. How do we? How do we? Yeah. How do we do this, right? Yeah, yeah. Just make this clean for me, real quick. <laughs> I, I, I want right or wrong. Right. <laughs> I want yes or no, uh, go or no go. I don't want right. like it depends. Like I think, yeah. The the age old therapist response. It really. It depends. You know? what, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> right. It's so common, but it is. And, and there's a reason for that because as helpers, especially when we step into people's lives, we yeah. don't, we, we, they, we are not the expert, right? Yeah. They, in, mm -hmm. in their lives and their relationships, they are the expert. And we have to, we have to give them time and space to 
step into that expertise and, and sort of work through and collaboratively come up with like, what is the best plan? And ultimately yeah. with the goal that you said, get them into treatment. How do we yeah. do that? And there is, there are lots, lots of ways to skin that cat. Yeah. You know? Try something. And if it doesn't work, try something else and, and, exactly. and don't give up. Right. I mean, we're dealing as we talked about life or death situations and the stakes are really high and yeah, the temptation might be to give up, but yeah be persistent and keep it up yeah. as it relates to someone who uh, might need help. And maybe you're a family member or a friend trying to help them find help. I would imagine, cause even just finding a therapist can be overwhelming because you get on psychology today and there's a hundred to choose from. Right. And I think about a situation where oh, I might need some help. I'm going to find a therapist. The stakes are not real high, but I just need to find a therapist yeah. and you have difficulty finding one. It takes a while. But oftentimes in these situations, is more of a panic. You have this window of opportunity. Someone finally is ready to get help. You're looking for help, but you still have the same problem. You have all these different numbers. You get on websites. All the websites promote the good stuff, right? Like, hey, we do this really awesome. We do that really awesome. So yeah. how do you really choose or what kind of questions could people ask to help help them with those decisions? That's a that's a great question. That's sort of the million dollar question <laughs> in all of this. And you know, with picking therapists and with picking treatment providers, it's, um, it is difficult. And the best advice I have for people is, <laughs> and maybe it's not great parallel, but finding a therapist, finding a treatment facilities, like, it's sort of like dating. Like <laughs> you, you have to, you have to trust your gut in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. Mm-hmm. And especially with a therapist, if you go to a therapist, because they have all the right credentials, because they're, psychology today profile is perfect and and you know they went to stanford for to get their phd but you get in there and you just don't like them yeah right? i think a lot of people just feel pressure to stick it out right yeah. and like well i mean they're really good and they're qualified so i mean it must be me is the problem but mm. I, I think people really need to trust their gut and trust yeah. their instincts if you if you like that therapist i think that does make a difference and i saw a post from you this week and and modalities work mm. and modalities are important you have to have a framework and as a therapist you have to have a therapeutic identity but that relationship is is critical and and sort of so finding somebody you can trust does predict outcomes the other thing i describe and i really liked your post this week because when i'm when i'm talking to students i i use the parallel of you're sick and you go to the doctor and you tell them you're sick and they draw up a shot right and before they stick it in your arm you're like whoa 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 what's <laughs> in that shot like what are you about what medicine are you about to give me if that doctor turns to you and says, I don't really know, but it seems to help a lot of people. <laughs> like You're not, not going to have much trust there, right? And so in therapy, what I challenge students and any therapist to do is if somebody asks you, like, how do you do therapy? Mm-hmm. Like, what, what, what's your modality? How, how are you going to help me? You better have a good answer to that. That's, like you better have an, an answer to that, that, that uh, the person asking it walks away saying, Oh, I know, I know what Jamie's going to do with me. I know, I know how this is going to work. And gonna, I think whenever you're choosing, that. I'm going to steal that by the way, I'll yeah, let you know. Yeah. I really like that analogy because, because that's, it's so true. And, and I think if you're on the client side and you're asking those questions, I think first and foremost, 
whether it be a person or a program, you want to get a sense if you can connect with that. And programs have, have different identities, and some of them specialize in, in nature. Some of them specialize in exercise. Some of them are in Colorado on the mountains, and some of them are on a beach. And you know, I think all of that has relevance, right? And I think that they could speak to you for different reasons, but don't just believe a website either. You know, talk to people, get a sense of 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 how they help people. I think that's a really important question. Yeah. You know, not where are you located, not just do you take my insurance. Those are important, but how do you help people? I think is really the key question. Yeah. And I think people just have to look out for if if somebody's just telling you everything exactly what you want to hear. Yeah. And every everything you say they got an answer for, and they're a perfect fit for that. I think you. I think people should have their wits about them and and be and pay attention to that. And and you should ask people about their outcomes. Like, what are your outcomes? Mm-hmm. Like, tell me a little bit about your care. Like, what are you yeah. what are you counting? Like, what do you yeah. know about yeah. the care you provide and how people do afterwards? That's a really important question as well. But for and and in our population, it's really interesting because half of our patients that come through our medical facilities have been to three to five detoxes or mm-hmm. more. Yeah, right? they've had many experiences and oftentimes they've had many bad experiences in care and i always get frustrated when i hear that because i think about my own kids you know my family members who could be in that situation where they're looking for help and not being able to find and i hear stories about that all the time as well people having to sift through multiple providers and start and, and not work and then move on to another one and so you know, this is certainly kind of a side note, but we, we have to do better as a mental health space, as an addiction space, providing effective treatment for people. And that's part of the reason why I teach at the university, because I wanted to send qualified people out in the field in the first place, right? I want to send them out with a good foundation that they can build on, because yeah. sometimes we have we have people coming out of these counseling programs and social work programs that, that don't have that. And then, then they're playing catch up and the stakes are high because we're dealing with people's lives. We're not fixing cars. We're not selling windows. We're we're helping people with life or death type situations many times. 100%. Since we have you, this is really good information. I think this is going to be helpful for our listeners. You are an expert as well in the opioid crisis, which has transitioned to fentanyl. And if you just turn on the news any given day, you hear about it. This is life or death, as we talked about before. This is truly life and death because people are dying every single day. Mm-hmm. So tell us what you know about this opioid fentanyl issue and and just help us to understand more about what this is. Yeah, I could talk for days about this. <laughs> it's 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 something that I follow really closely and yeah. just I'm, I'm constantly paying attention to sort of this trend and trajectory. The the most interesting thing and statistic, you know, like we talked about, we're probably around the same age. And when we grew up, like, do you remember those commercials of like, this is your brain on drugs? Oh, yeah. I reference that all the time because I used to like show that video in treatment classes, like don't use marijuana, you will die. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so that like, uh, we grew up in this era with dare and everything else where it was just like trying to scare people into not right. using drugs. And like, you will, you're going to die if you use drugs. Mm-hmm. And right now that's, that that is true. I don't think it was it was not as true as it is yeah. now for sure. Yeah. And the yeah. most interesting statistic happening right now is for adolescents. We know about 30% of kids by the time they're 19 or 20 will experiment with illicit drugs, right? That number has not changed. 
for decades. Mm -hmm. Like that number is static. There are not more people today experimenting with drugs um, than there were 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Like that number has just stayed static. But the number of overdoses from drugs is going up exponentially. And when I say exponentially, that is not a hyperbole. It's yeah, going yeah. up exponentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it is it is a huge, massive problem. And it's and unfortunately, it's probably going to still get worse before it gets better. Mm. And I think that's really scary. For just a quick overview, when we think about sort of where we're at with fentanyl right now, that we call that we call this the third wave of the opiate crisis. We've had two waves before that. The first being hospitals made pain a vital sign, and and with pressure from pharmaceutical companies selling oxycotton and oxycodone, right, which were powerful pharmaceutical opiates, and they were telling people these things aren't addictive. Mm. Years later huge swaths of our country was addicted to opiates mm -hmm. and pharmaceutical companies were held accountable. And so they turned off the pump of making those opiates. And after they did that, people turned to street drugs. People were dependent on these things. They were getting violently ill if they didn't take them. And so heroin had this huge rise so much so that drug dealers could not keep up with the demand. They could, they simply could not grow enough heroin to keep up with demand. And so they pivoted to fentanyl, which is a, is a pharmaceutical. Like historically, that's been a pharmaceutical. Like if you've had surgery, chances are you were given fentanyl. Heroin is that second wave, fentanyl is that third wave. And really, just to give context to what we're talking about now, the amount of fentanyl that would fit in a sunglasses case you would need a carry-on suitcase worth of heroin. Mm -hmm. Those thing, two things, uh, a suitcase yeah. full of heroin is equivalent to a sunglass case of fentanyl. Like, so when you think about it, just the potency, how much easier, how much easier it is to traffic, how much cheaper it is to make. I mean, people have seen Breaking Bad and sort of saw their lab, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that's that that's sort of what this fentanyl production looks like now compared to heroin, where you'd have to have large swaths of land sort of dedicated to that and because it's so potent lots of accidents can happen mm -hmm. they mix that fentanyl in with their counterfeit pills mm -hmm. these pills are made to look like an oxycontin they're they're made to look like something that came out of a pharmacy right or a percocet or a vicodin or even an adderall that's been mixed in but because it's not scientifically done, there's there's no way of measuring how much fentanyl is getting into each of those pills because yeah. the vast majority of those pills are filler. And so accidents are just happening, right? People are not intending to overdose. I hope everybody out there understands that. You yeah. know, like people are not going out intending to die and overdose on these drugs. They're using sort of pretty calculated amounts a lot of time and and just every now and then there's one of these hot pills that has too much and people people stop breathing and die it's really good information and i hope that you scared some people because it's scary right like it I'm, scary. it's a scary thing and so if we have listeners at home that maybe our parents have kids uh, or yeah. young people i think i know your answer to this but what would be your message to them yeah, great question. So, you know, the access to pills is a lot different than when we were 
kids, right? Like uh, when I was growing up, I mean, you, you did have to have a connection or a drug mm -hmm. dealer and go find it. You had to like physically go find drugs, right? Or have somebody introduce you to somebody in person. Nowadays, you don't even need to meet the drug dealer, right? Like, and people are, most of the kids are connecting over social media, mm -hmm. right? Snapchat, Instagram, mm -hmm. there's just different emojis that drug dealers use. And you can give explicit instructions, like leave it in the bush next to my house, right? And so parents need to understand that, like that that's how kids are accessing these drugs. So this idea that, oh, my kid was never in those places, right? Or those settings where that kind of stuff is happening. That's not how this goes down anymore. Like this goes down on social media and, and it is savvy and it is sophisticated. And, and you know, I, I don't like scare tactics, but this is scary what's mm -hmm. happening right now. And it's only getting worse. Now we have this xylazine sedative and mm -hmm. all of these new synthetic, you know, the media is calling it zombie. Uh, mm -hmm. what are they calling it? zombie dope or something. Mm -hmm. And, I really don't like that because it just sensationalizes and, and adds mm -hmm. to stigma. I mean, these are mm -hmm. human beings, not yeah, zombies. Yeah. That's for another podcast, right? <laughs> but yeah, now the fentanyl, which was already extremely dangerous, is also being cut with this powerful sedative that Narcan cannot reverse the effects of. And this xylazine is setting up to be the fourth wave of this. And it's already been detected in 37 states. Wow. And a drug test for that, Jamie, is five hundred dollars right? which is just inaccessible no i mean who what program can afford that yeah absolutely we talked early in the podcast about the the egg and the frying pan and scare yeah. tactics and all that stuff and i feel like i'm doing it right now like i feel like i'm egg in the frying pan right now in my podcast yeah. but it's serious and it truly is life or death and this yeah. could kill you like marijuana back in uh, when i started my substance use addictions career was probably in 2007 marijuana yeah. back in 2007 most likely wasn't going to kill you unless it's laced with something really bad right but right. This, these pills that are out there will kill you yeah and and that and you bring up such a good point and in, in, in the conversation to be had with kids and if kids are listening to this these drug dealers tell you like this came out of my my grandfather died and was mm -hmm. in hospice and i i just i have these oxys and i'm trying to get rid of them i mean they're Drug dealers aren't stupid, right? Mm -hmm. They they know what to say. They know they're telling people this is real Xanax or this is real Oxy or this is a real Percocet or Vicodin. And those pills look identical. You cannot actually, some of the counterfeit Oxy, like M30 pills, mm -hmm. they look they look better than the real thing. Because <laughs> yeah. the real thing kind of would get crumbly and like look mm -hmm. bad. And the the counterfeit ones. They they look more sleek and 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 legitimate. It's 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 pretty wild. So yeah. Steve, this has been helpful. And again, this is part of this performance series. We're talking about physical health, and you know, I don't think we're saying to anyone stop drinking, stop smoking weed, or whatever it is for you. Everyone has to evaluate their own relationships with alcohol, with substances. If you do use, how can you have a healthy relationship with mm -hmm. that? And so, you know, I encourage everyone just to evaluate your relationship with substances. And if you're not sure, I encourage you to ask somebody you trust, like, hey, mm -hmm. you see me and we're out together and we do things together. And what do you think about my relationships with, with substances? And where do you think I stand? And 
ask somebody you trust. Don't ask your dealer. Don't ask the person that you party with all the time because they may give you a skewed answer. But ask someone you trust because evaluating your 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 substance use is important for your mental health. It's important as it relates to performance. If you have an area of your life that is important to you that you're really trying to perform at your peak level, whether it be business, sports, uh, even just being a really good partner or whatever it is, it affects that. It's just really important to evaluate. Couldn't agree more with that. Um, and yeah, people should think about it, talk about it. There's no harm in that. When when you're thinking about your relationship with substances and you think about just healthy coping and like, what is it? What are examples? What are models of like how to cope with life? Because life is hard. Life mm-hmm. is filled with pain sometimes and it's filled with joy and like you get it all. Over time with substances, if all of your other healthy coping, all of that exercise, having a healthy diet, journaling, seeing a therapist, talking to friends, over time, that gets if that starts just getting replaced with using substances, that's when you're on a bad track, right? Yeah. If your life used to be full of sort of all these activities that were healthy, and now it's just replaced with substances, it's a time to be worried. Yeah. Steve, you've given us a lot of good information, a lot to think about. How can people find out more about you or what you do? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Steve Carlton. Also, you can find more more out about our program at gallusdetox.com. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Very valuable. I enjoyed my time with you. It was fun talking to you, even though we're talking about something really serious. It was an engaging conversation, and I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Jamie. Great to be with you. You have just listened to the All In Your Head podcast. Learn more by following Jamie Glick on LinkedIn or by subscribing to the Mental Health Training Camp YouTube channel. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call now or text 988 to get connected to free confidential support. Thanks for listening.